have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner My guest today on Spirit in Action is Ina May Gaskin. Ina May has been an internationally recognized leader in advocating for spiritual midwifery since the early 1970s. Spiritual Midwifery is the title of her first book, initially published in 1976, now in its fourth edition. Ina May is an author, activist, and advocate whose spiritual insights and empowerment have been part of the incredible exploration, which is The Farm, the spiritually-based intentional community in Tennessee, founded in the early 1970s. Her newest book, Guide to Childbirth, published in 2003, continues Ina May's quest to educate and raise awareness, empowering women to choose the birthing that will give them the deepest health, connection, and well-being. She joins us today from Summertown, Tennessee. Welcome, Ina May, to Spirit in Action. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Ina May, you just got back from traveling around quite a bit. Why did you spend the winter or the summer in South Australia? Ah, yes. Well, there was the 24th, I think it was, annual Home Birth Australia conference. So I've been checking in, really, you know, visiting every now and then to Australia. Their home birth movement was pretty much coincidental with ours here. And having the chance to travel a lot 
a year or two or three after the first publication of Spiritual Midwifery, gave me a unique opportunity to see how people give birth in different countries, how different the ideas are about what a midwife is, or who could be at a birth, or could they even happen at home safely. You've been doing midwifery for a long time, 35 plus years. How did you get into it, and why? My university training was in English. I got a master's degree and had my first baby during the year I was getting that degree. Learned by the experience I had giving birth to her or her being delivered by forceps, not my idea, nor was it necessary. I certainly know that now. But coming to understand that birth had been changed from being considered something that women do to something that could only be safe in retrospect and safe if attended by a surgeon ready to do abdominal surgery at the drop of a hat. Now, that wasn't quite true when I gave birth because that was mid-60s. The C-section rate was less than 5% then, but what they did instead was forceps. And you couldn't be an English major and not know that forceps gone wrong is pretty nasty. And you couldn't be a curious kid and not know the forceps were not something nice. So when I went to a physician for whom it was obligatory, and I knew this was crazy, but I still lacked the stuff to bow out and get a different one. I thought I could change him, which is where I was very wrong, but that's what it took to relieve me of my naivete in relation to how childbirth policy is put together, because it has nothing to do with pleasing the individual woman. And I thought, actually, the core of my philosophy is that that's exactly what you need to do. I knew that if you treated the mother well, she could do better. And so after I left the place where I'd given birth to the first child and heard about people giving birth at home, attended by a person with nurses training whose arm they had twisted to stay there and watch and make sure everything was going well, these people started giving birth at home and under these conditions and their reports of their experiences was entirely different. And I was speaking to people who were euphoric and strengthened, changed forever by the experience. And I thought, now I know what I want to do. So that's really how the path occurred to me as one I'd like to take. And then when my husband, Stephen, who had been holding a class in San Francisco called Monday Night Class since 1966, which adjourned for a speaking tour in 1970 at a time when 1,500 people per week were attending it and taking part in this conversation. The speaking tour covered 42 different speaking places, universities, churches sometimes. Babies started being born because 300 people came with us and some of them were pregnant. And so that was my unusual entry into midwifery. And I think the amazing thing is that with a little help from some kind-hearted and wise uh, an obstetrician in Rhode Island and a family practice doctor near where we settled in Tennessee, these two doctors got us started with some timely help that we needed occasionally or just to get equipped with the right tools that a midwife would need to be able to help women give birth safely and to, to give prenatal care and a little bit of direction in the beginning, and we were able to have success in birth, safe births. And when I counted the C-section rate for, let's say, the first 400 births, it was less than half a percent. The interesting thing about that is that 
nobody knows that's possible unless they've, you know, they've had a similar experience. Your English degree didn't come in particularly helpful in this process, did it? Well, I think it did, but maybe not in the way that one might have expected. English degree teaches critical thinking, so you certainly, you quickly learn that just because something's written down on a page doesn't mean it's true, or that there might not be some more important truth lying under what appears to be said in the words. You could also learn that words have a lot of power, and that some of the words we speak can matter a great deal at certain times. So I think there's a training that you get there where you know that words have effects on people, and certain words certainly you might choose above others if you're in the presence of somebody who's giving birth, for instance. So, yeah, in an odd way, I think it was very good, and I would recommend more of that in the training of people who deal with the human body, you know, the human mind-body. I don't really like to separate that much because we're taught that our brains are separate from our bodies, our brains are superior, bodies eh, kind of badly designed, have to get fat. What's it matter? Why take care of it? It's probably messed up anyway. The assumption that a great deal of medical care and a great deal of pharmaceutical products will be required to get through this life. I mean, these aren't ideas that people have had very long. And, of course, we did without all these things. Perhaps that's why we did so well. We weren't taking the latest, you know, over-the-counter drug, or very few people were taking prescription drugs. People weren't watching television, so they didn't hear a lot of scary report about birth. Because we just landed here, put all of our money into land, and didn't have cash or credit cards, we lived very simply, and that meant we talked to each other a lot. And so when one person had a baby, everybody heard about it quickly. And if she had a wonderful time, which fortunately happened in some of those early births, things that we didn't know could happen did. You want to hear about one of those? You bet. Okay. Getting ready for the caravan. This was the saga. Turned out to be about half a year's traveling around the country with lectures going on, you know, at Northwestern University and University of Minnesota and Princeton and all kinds of things like that. Of course, had all of our living gear with us. There was a bed in each school bus that was converted, so we were nomadic. This couple, one of them was working on the buses, the husband. They were expecting the first baby. And she was cooking at another site a few miles away. This is in San Francisco. He started to feel very ill and began to wonder if he had appendicitis and hitchhiked on home in quite a few miles, lay in bed wondering if he was going to die. Toward the end of the day, she drove home, found him there, miserable, massaged him. He underwent a pretty miraculous improvement to the point where they were both ready to eat and had a meal. And then she started feeling not so good, went in and sat on the toilet, and very soon was calling him, saying, everything's coming out. And he got there in time to catch the baby before he hit the water. Now, that's not the usual birth story that one hears. It happened to somebody that we knew, and we knew she didn't embroider it, she didn't exaggerate it. It was real. It happened to her. There's a word for this, a French word called couvade. And I had heard of this because I, you know, used to read encyclopedias for fun sometimes <laughs> when I was a strange kid. But here was an example of it. Transferred pain, male feels pain instead of woman. She gives birth. Didn't know she was in labor. Very much like an animal. Well, then it gets you thinking, why would the rest of us have such a hard time if one person can do that and you know them, they're real? Well, I had read something when I was 16 
Brantley Dick Reed wrote a book called Childbirth Without Fear. He was a British doctor, and he saw a couple of painless births after having seen probably hundreds of very painful ones, and he was struck the same way. What's the difference? How does this happen? Um, we found our way to that just by knowing it was a possibility. Our group of people, once we decided to share with each other, trust each other, and be close in talking to each other about relationships, we settled here in the woods, little money, but with an eye to having a good relationship with our neighbors so that they would become helpful to us, as they did, but that we wanted to live our own way, that we did have home births, but we wanted a good relationship with the people at the hospital. We had people who actually worked at the hospital instead of you know, service in Vietnam. If you were a conscientious subjector, you could do your time being a hospital aide or something of the kind. So we had people who did that. And again, you know, it just reinforced this idea that sweetness and love and tenderness actually makes for fewer complications. And when people get hurted through a process of having a baby, which really should be called baby separation rituals or something, this is not giving birth. Giving birth certainly has in it the idea of the activity and the agency of the mother. So much of the medical model of care and how it's been developed in this country has ended up being all the things that we do to the mother. And then we spend loads of money justifying why we do these things. But they often separate the baby from the mother in ways that it's difficult to get the two back together so that they do have that first relationship that humans are supposed to have is that intimate connection with the mother. That's what mother nature has designed, you could say, we're created to do this. And if we fail to have that first relationship take place, my sense is and my experience is that the human and beyond human consequences can't be counted, but they're enormous. child arrived just the other day He came to the world in the usual way But there were planes to catch and bills to pay He learned to walk while I was away And he was talking for I knew it And as he grew, he'd say I'm gonna be like you, Dad You know I'm gonna be like you And the cats in the cradle and the Sit for a while, 
He shook his head and they said with a smile What I'd really like, Dad, is to borrow the car keys See you later, can I have them, please? And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon Little boy blue and the man on the moon When you're coming home, son, I don't know when But we'll get together then, Dad You know we'll have a good time then Since retired, my son's moved away I called him up just the other day I said I'd like to see you if you don't mind He said I'd love to, Dad, if I can find the time You see, my new job's a hassle and the kids are the flu But it's your nice talking to you, Dad It's been your nice talking to you And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me He'd grown up just like me My boy was just like me And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon Little boy blue and the man on the moon When you're coming home, son, I don't know when But we'll get together then, Dad We're gonna have a good time then Why do you think it is that women in the U.S. are so afraid of home birth? I think that we're afraid of home birth simply because we are the first huge area in the world to completely eliminate an ancient profession that's been with us maybe for 30, 40,000 years. We've had humans for 40,000 years. My sense is that midwifery, women helping women, was something that probably happened very soon when we started having humans. Other species are pretty happy to give birth helping themselves. When did it, as a practice, start tailing off? Well, it was actually made illegal. The first state which actually made midwifery illegal was Massachusetts, and that happened around 1910, 1911. And that was right around the time when physicians were organizing to the point where they really wanted the monopoly. So I think it was a combination of urban life and the culture that starts. I think it was that we didn't have professional medical societies that said what was and was not medical. These professional societies existed in countries of comparable wealth and industrial development, and they would have kept medicine separate from midwifery. Midwifery in Europe is very important, and it's always helped by It's assumed that most babies will be born into the hands of the midwife. All of these countries have them, and in most countries, when that move toward hospitalization came about, midwives went with them. And this meant less interventionist birth in Europe as compared with the United States. That was one of the big surprises for me when I first began visiting Europe in late 70s, early 80s. Do they do a lot of home birth in Europe? There's one country where the percentage of home birth has never been as low as it is in all the other wealthy countries, and that country is the Netherlands. They still have more than a third of Dutch babies are born at home in the presence of a midwife. 
more than that would start out with the labor at home and maybe for one reason or another there would be a transfer on to a hospital. The government actually promotes this as safe and a wise choice. And Dutch statistics, outcomes for mothers and babies' health are among the very best in the world. So I think that effectively punctures that myth that there's something wrong with women's bodies. I think that our minds are confused and there are some other interests that have more influence on how childbirth policy is made than probably should have. I think the best way for it to be designed should come out of what women find true themselves. What you need now is a lot of information to even know how your body works. Women are taught to think that they got a dud and it just probably won't work, so why don't you just go ahead and get the surgery on a day when you schedule it rather than the day that it would happen on its own. Can you tell me a little bit about statistics? Uh, You've got a wealth of experience, more than a couple thousand babies born through the farm. What kind of incidents do you have of things like home birth, of people who have to go to the hospital, who have to have cesarean sections, episiotomies, how much maternal death, all those kinds of outcomes? Okay, well, just no maternal death. Use that for starters. Everybody that wanted to join the community was allowed to, no matter their health condition, how many cesareans their ancestors had had or how big their hips looked (laughs) or difference between their height and that of their partner. None of those things were imposed on people. We did have a healthy lifestyle. Nobody smoked cigarettes. And people were vegan, full vegetarian, but supplementing vitamin B12. Everybody got a lot of exercise. That was pretty much mandatory because you didn't have your own car. You didn't even have your own bicycle. So there was a lot of walking going on. Above all, we had very little fear, you know, perhaps almost no fear about birth. They could look around them and they could see, oh, that baby's born, that one, that one, that one. They, they know everybody's stories and they could see for themselves it was safe. This adds to a feeling of safety when you give birth. We also learned important things like birth can go backwards when a mother is afraid. This can create a belief in people who observe this happening in the hospital that there's something wrong with the woman's body when actually it's that she doesn't have enough privacy and her body can't open. Now, we all know these things happen when, you know, when we're defecating. Everybody knows it works that way. Well, it works the same way with a, a woman having a baby. Think about it. It's even bigger. I call that sphincter law, by the way. When you create an atmosphere in which a woman can labor well, and this will be an atmosphere free of fear, hopefully with some laughter going on because that's the best anesthesia, then you actually find that women can give birth and they're not needing to have anesthesia. Every time you add a drug or you put a mother in a position she would not seek on her own, you're slowing down the birth, you're messing with the birth in some way, or you're creating a situation where something could go wrong that's going to require another intervention, and then something can go wrong with that, and then you end up with major surgery for something that shouldn't happen that way. All of that's reflected in our statistics. And so counting from the first birth I ever saw, which took place in a parking lot at Northwestern University in November 1970, And then I began recruiting certain of my friends to be midwives because I was still having babies, too. I needed help. There were a lot of us, and I knew we were going to be busy. So we taught each other. We learned. And it took 186 babies 
birth before we encountered a labor where we actually needed a cesarean section. This is a very low C-section rate. It destroys the myth that a lot of people have a body that just can't do it. What's that compared to the standard in the United States or in Europe? The C-section rate rose quickly from the mid-70s. It began the 70s at 5%. And then before you knew it, it was up to 15 and then 20%, and then 25%. Then it began to go down. There was a lot of pressure to do this. And we actually lowered the C-section rate from around 25-26% down to about 20%. So what would you say the statistics are, Europe, U.S., uh, the farm? The United States' latest was over 29% C-section. That was for 2003. There are certainly plenty of physicians who are saying really that close to 100% would be acceptable to them. And there are others who think that that is crazy. But there's a lot to suggest. In fact, we know very well that the chance of maternal death raises by three to four times when you compare the cesarean with a vaginal birth. The cesarean rate in, for instance, the Netherlands is around 12 13%. The World Health Organization suggests, in fact, makes a recommendation that it be below 15% and that when the cesarean rate gets over 15% that you actually find it causing more problems for the women and for the babies. I can't tell you how many times I've been told by a physician that up to a certain point in their life, deep into their professional career, they had never seen a normal birth. Well, if you haven't seen a normal birth, you don't know how the body works, and you don't know that it works better when you respect how it works. I'm sure this is why we were successful at this profession. We just plunged in and learned by doing. We've even had such good statistics that I was often asked to speak in medical schools, and people went, ooh, ah, wow, I didn't even know that was possible, looking at videos that we'd shot here of people giving birth. Instead of seeing a woman screaming in fear, they'd watch a woman turn her partner's head to her and kiss him on the mouth while having a contraction, and you'll have low sexual moans, and we'll go... Oh, you mean that could be part of labor. What did you say the statistics have been for cesarean section at the farm? Oh, I don't think I said that. Less than 2%. It started out less than half a percent. And then as we began taking in women who, some of them were in pretty distressed circumstances, our cesarean rate actually tripled, but that only put it at 1.5%. And again, that's under what most medical people are taught is humanly possible. Let's talk about something that's considerably less pleasant, and that is maternal death and maybe baby death, you know, loss of the child and loss of the mother. What is your experience with that at the farm, and what is it like in our American society? I know that a lot of people think that the U.S. has the best health care in the world, but I think our statistics don't generally bear that out. Well, that's really true. When it comes to death of a mother in pregnancy or birth or just after from causes directly related to the fact that she was pregnant or the care she received during that, at least 30 countries do better than we do. So that should be sobering right there. And then... No other country has to admit that it's as far off in its estimation of how many die per year. The epidemiologists at the Centers for Disease Control say we could easily have three times that many dying and not know it. 
Why is that? Because it's all in an honor system, and this reporting doesn't have to happen. There's no penalty for not reporting. Now, I think most hospitals report that people died, but what happens is they get misclassified, and it never goes into the way to get retrieved as a woman who died because of her pregnancy. It's just woman died, loss of blood, something like that, not connected with pregnancy. So when they sort out these statistics, it has to be coded in there, right? And I think that's what the CDC is saying, that they probably only get it right a third of the time. What kind of statistics are we talking about in the U.S., Europe, or in the farm? Well, the farm, there's been no maternal mortality. Both infant and maternal death rates have been going up in the United States over the last several years in relation to newborn deaths and for more than 20 years with respect to women. And it's not because we're reporting better. That's not the reason. We should report well. That's what we have to start with. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to require honesty. That's the reason for the Safe Motherhood Quilt. I'm showing people that these were loved women. These were women who were maybe 17 years old, maybe 30 years old, maybe 32 years old. They, they were families that loved them. They were healthy. Uh, they didn't know this could happen. Very few of these were deaths that could not have been prevented. Some had the mistakes that can happen after a cesarean and die because the mistake wasn't corrected or couldn't be corrected. Some were induction mistakes. They died suddenly from taking this drug side attack because they were afraid to go against the doctor saying you can't go past uh, 40 weeks of pregnancy or we have to give you this pill. Well, women have been going past 40, even 41 weeks of pregnancy for centuries. You mentioned the Safe Motherhood Quilt Project, but I don't think you said what it was. Okay, the Safe Motherhood Quilt Project really is inspired by the AIDS quilt, and because we don't do accurate counting of maternal death, we have too high a rate in the United States. It's not sufficient to have an honor system. For this, you really need accurate and real information that could be audited, and it needs to happen in every one of the 50 states, and it needs to be the same standard in every state. Only by looking at all the maternal deaths, identifying every one of those that happens, and then by studying what happens. And there is a system that's a precedent for this that's used in the UK, the United Kingdom, of every time there's a maternal death, a multidisciplinary team, you know, that would be, you know, midwife, obstetrician, epidemiologist perhaps, pediatrician perhaps, traveling to the site of the death. Normally this would be a hospital, and they would go through all the records. They would see what there is to be learned about this death. Could it tell us anything about how to prevent another such unnecessary death from taking place. So this would happen. You would have a full report. Recommendations would be made. There, feedback would be given, not punishment, feedback. That's what happens in the United Kingdom, in the U.K. And for that reason, they've had a steady decline of maternal death. We don't have anything like that. And unlike the U.K. where they're lowering their maternal death rate, over the same period of time, ours is being leveled out and then started going up. What got me, really, was when a couple applied to have a baby here, and both of them were obstetricians that were about to finish up their residency. And I was pretty amazed that they would even ask us. And then when I found out they were doing it because they were afraid to give birth where they were learning, uh, you can imagine how I felt. Wow. <laughs> That's really voting with your feet. Yes. Yeah, so they did manage to have their baby just fine. 
and they said over and over they couldn't have done it where they worked. But what I've collected is, and this is very hard information to get because anybody who works at a hospital who gives me the name of a woman who's died since 1982, and that's the parameters for the quilt, I'm, I want the name and the date of death and the age of the woman and where she lived of any woman who died since 1982 in the United States for reasons directly related with her pregnancy. I want her name so that I can commemorate her in this quilt, which now is made up of five different panels of women's names, 20 names to a panel, that stretches out 15 feet long by a yard high, each panel, and then there's one that's more 81 inches by 81 inches. Each of these women has a piece made perhaps by a sister, a friend, several friends. One case, the obstetrician who couldn't save the woman's life made the piece, and sometimes by volunteers. And they're very beautiful. The first panel was displayed at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. I think that women will want to, I mean, even though this is a depressing topic, it's also the kind that makes you perk up your ears and go, oh, why wasn't I told that before? This has got to be one of the best-kept secrets in our society right now, and it has profound implications, I think, for women's health care. What I'm trying to do is get congressional attention so that we could have legislation that would provide for a system like that in the U.K. So the message is we shouldn't be having all these orphans. No more than three women per 100,000 should be dying. It shouldn't be a big risk to have a baby, and I'm sorry to say right now in my country it's getting to be a bigger risk. We're going the wrong direction. That's what I want to do something about. And if this quilt gets the kind of attention that I think it should, and if I could potentially get every name in since 1982 of every woman that died, according to the estimates, we're talking about more than 20,000 women. You're putting together another quilt, aren't you? That's right. The other quilt is to, just so that all the work isn't sad, there's a joy associated with birth. The women that have given birth here are kind of a special sisterhood because they know that the fact that they gave birth here made it easier for them, that others were doing it, that there was something to be shared in terms of knowledge, in terms of realizing the strength that women have is not one that's best expressed individually. Yes, you can have strong individuals. There's another kind of woman's strength that's best accessed and best expressed when it's shared. And I have to say motherhood's one of these things. About the quilt project for the farm babies, you're trying to contact everybody who's had a baby there? Or who knows somebody who was born there and come to my website. I'll have that part up there soon, com, and I'll describe the project because we want everybody to have their quilt piece there, and that's more than 2,000 people. (laughs) That's quite a crowd. You should have a reunion of them all. Well, I think we will, because what's happening now, we're having these quilting circles that are taking place all over the country, and, you know, some people aren't even in the country. They're sitting in Germany with their needlework, and, you know, sometimes they're sitting down together and the stories are going again, and that means the next generation gets to hear them, and that's how you build a culture of birth. Nature being no fool, you know, gives us the arms so that we can hold those babies, and the breasts 
are supposed to work, but we have, again, we've come to a point in this history of industrialization where we have a large and rather imposing kind of culture that insists that these things should be discontinued, that it's really a lot better if we mechanize this whole process and we inject as much technology as we can into this process. And pretty soon you can get it to where women don't even know, for instance, what their breasts might be for, or if they do know, they accuse women who use them for that purpose of being exhibitionists and people who need to be corrected, not allowed to feed the baby in a way that wouldn't also feed some large corporation. Have you found a correlation between attitudes on sex and how well birthing and raising of children goes? Well, you know, I haven't ever sort of surveyed people on that subject, but I did put out a survey asking women if they ever had an orgasm during labor and birth, and I got some attitudes back on that because clearly a lot of people never heard of it, and I suspect that would be true of your listeners. And they would say, well, no, I didn't. Who did? (laughs) And I knew a few people would say yes. What I wasn't prepared for was that more than a fifth of 151 women said yes. (laughs) So that's a big one that doesn't get talked about. I suppose that doesn't happen when you're under anesthesia. I'm sure you're right about that. About three years ago, helped a young woman who's from Brazil, and she was working as a doula, labor assistant, and a translator, and became pregnant, and she wanted to have the baby at home. And she went on with the pregnancy very nicely, and even though she was to have a large baby, I was sure she could do it. But what surprised me when I got there was that I had showed her a videotape of belly dancing as prenatal preparation that is done in parts of North Africa and Middle East. And when I got there, she was playing Brazilian music. As you know, there's a lot of hip-shaking going on in samba and other Brazilian dances that you might see at Carnival. Anyway, she was leaning on a long staff, putting a lot of pressure on that downward pressure with her hands and arms, doing figure eights with her hips, and not having any pain. Quite striking how little pain she had. She went all the way through the birth of a near 10-pound baby and had fun. And proved to me that dancing is very important. It was probably done much more by people in preceding times when they weren't so confused or inhibited by structures imposed by a larger culture that wasn't so sensitive to the needs of women. I'm sure that a more woman-friendly culture, and these have existed, included a lot of wild pelvic gyration that became socially and, what should I say, theologically restricted. Who knows how long ago it happened that Europeans were made to dance with straight spines and never deviate from these really rather unnatural postures. But this leaves deep imprints on women of these cultures, and these women won't give birth as easily as they might have if they were less inhibited.
different culture present at the farm or is sex looked at differently is the body the body mind as you mentioned are they looked at differently there well i suppose to some degree we talked about it from the early days we certainly learned that kissing and cuddling in labor can release hormones that dampen pain they can also release hormones that hasten labor so both of these would be good Love making can induce labor when a woman is at term and the baby's ready to come. To have a culture in which it would be forbidden to me seems rather nutty. <laughs> I think you're used to being a maverick in the world. You've probably had a few decades of crusade here, trying to bring the system around to something more sane. Have you encountered a lot of resistance? Do you still encounter a lot of resistance as you preach your kind of revised gospel of handing it over to the hospitals? You don't get resistance. You get ignored, basically. (laughs) When Spiritual Midwifery was first published, a lot of the country was interested in getting closer to nature. And there were very few books about childbirth. And spiritual midwifery was kind of this exuberant explosion of all these wonderful stories of babies being born and people looking pretty happy and healthy as they were doing it. And then some information in the back about how it was all done and everything. Nowadays you have tons of books out there. But what the information tends to, and many, to reinforce the idea that it's kind of a, the cards you're dealt more or less, and you just don't know what kind of a body you get, and like as not, you're going to be unlucky, and you get one of the buddies that doesn't work so well, and then eventually you have to have a cesarean, and then it was a good thing the doctor was there, or your baby would have died, and people make the assumption that their body would perform the same way in any setting, and that's not the case. That's why I talk about what I call sphincter law, to illustrate what I mean. Sphincters, by the way, are the group of circular muscles around the bladder or the anus, And also we have the cervix, and you can't just command them to open. The louder somebody would shout, in fact, the less likely it would be to open. I think we all know that. But we don't put it together that this is also the case with the cervix. The opening to the uterus is supposed to open itself regularly and rather quickly, no matter what is done to the mother, no matter what position she might be in or how she might be feeling or how she's treated and what kind of fears or lack of fear she carries around with her. Uh, In reality, all these things matter. These are huge, huge factors and completely can govern what happens. I learned that in the first ten births. We had a woman whose cervix refused to open. It stayed three-quarters of the way open, baby still in good condition, having hard contractions, and getting nowhere until a friend came by and let it be known that this mother had grown up thinking that her mother, her biological mother, had died in childbirth, and that had been the reason for her adoption. And when this was said aloud, 
it released her from the power of that fear, and then the cervix that wouldn't dilate suddenly opened all the way. It was impossible to believe that that was any kind of a coincidence. Of course, that was cause and effect, the saying of that truth and the opening of her cervix. So that's pretty exciting to get to work with that, and I don't get attacked. I go into medical circles. I get treated like a wonderfully strange, I guess, creature from a, a different culture. The younger they are, the more eager they usually are to take in this information, and the older they are, it's a little less palatable, I think. You're an advocate of spiritual midwifery. What is that compared to non-spiritual midwifery? Well, the essence of it is what I was talking about a little bit earlier when I was mentioning that mother's feelings actually do matter. That hard time can be so much easier if there's kindness. And so I actually think it comes down to we need to be kind to mothers so mothers can be kind to their babies so these babies can grow up to be humans that know how to be kind. My observation is that when we don't do that, too often these babies grow up to be people who literally don't know how to love others, don't know how to treat others, and they're the ones that threaten to tear the world apart. Wonderful baby, living on love. The Sandman says maybe he'll take you above. Up where the girls fly on ribbons and bows, where babies float by just counting their toes. Wonderful baby, nothing but new The world has gone crazy, I'm glad I'm not you At the beginning, or is it the end? It goes in and comes out and starts over again Oh, you're a wonderful baby, living on love The Sandman says maybe he'll take you above up where the girls fly on ribbons and bows, where babies float by, just counting their toes. Wonderful baby, I watch while you grow. If I knew the future, you'd be first to know. But I don't know nothing of what life's about. Just as long as you live, you never find out. Wonderful baby. Nothing to fear Love whom you will But doubt what you hear They'll whisper sweet things And make you untrue So be good to yourself That's all you can do You're a wonderful baby Living on love The Sandman says maybe He'll take you above Up where the girls fly On ribbons and bows where babies float by, just counting their toes. I want to ask you some more about the roots of your spirituality. What are your views or your beliefs about the soul and about things like the sacredness of life? We proceed from a realization that we're actually one, that what hurts you may hurt me. I'm not saying that you don't ever have situations where you might have to defend yourself. Obviously you do. But in general, that if things are handled from a standpoint of realizing our essential oneness, 
you don't have such horrible conflicts erupting that they can't be solved short of violence. War, certainly, I think it's possible for humans to outgrow war. I wish we'd get on with it, but I think there's a lot that makes that difficult, and some of what makes it difficult, I think, is the way we are born, because I think a lot of times it's hard for somebody who's felt fear and cruelty from the time they were born and separation from the mother and where that yearning to be reunited with the mother was denied. Literally, the baby's nervous system doesn't form in the same way and baby doesn't get such a high development of the part of the brain that makes it possible for that child to behave in a social manner and not to lash out at others. Is midwifery something that men can do too? Yes, but it doesn't mean any man can do it. I think that there are certain men that can be good and sensitive midwives. Of course, there are some, you know, they might do things a little differently than women might because of the gender difference, but there's no gender that has a monopoly on sensitivity, and that's really what we're talking about is needed, the ability to observe a woman in labor and not to make her feel watched or dominated in any sort of way, just to be there in a supportive way. So your website is inamay.com. Can you spell that? I-N-A-M-A-Y dot com. And there you can find information about the induction drug side attack. You can find information about farm statistics, about ways to give birth that are maybe out of the ordinary but very effective and can quell or make pain manageable. And you can find out about both quilt projects, the uh, Safe Motherhood Quilt Project, its goals and purposes, and the background and the same with the Farm Quilt Project, those babies who were born, who landed into the hands of a farm midwife since 1970 up to the present day. And so we want to have contact with everybody that we can. And if there's a family member that wants to make the piece, that's what we'd like to know. And if anybody wants to volunteer to make pieces for the project, that's welcome too. And so are donations. Could you give me a brief snapshot? you know, particularly for our listeners, of what the farm is like today versus what it was like before. I mean, it was an immense kind of alternative community, a commune, back in the 1970s. In the early 1980s, I think it was that it ceased to function as a commune. What is it like there today? Is there still this motherhood midwifery community? Is that still going on there? Oh, yes, the midwifery um, sector, I guess, never really made that much of a change, although we did have to begin charging for our services in the early 80s when we changed our economic organization from everybody throwing everything they had into the central treasury and then doing our spending it from that standpoint to a point where we still own all the land and the buildings, and that's collective but in other ways we have separate incomes and we then pay in monthly dues for the water system to maintain certain community services and so on. Now, we started out at about 300 people. We swelled during the 70s and early 80s to about 1,300 people, including visitors and people waiting to have babies. Then we went back to about 200, 250 people 
we're around that number now, although we still do get visitors and we have midwives or people learning to be doulas. We have some workshops that can be, and there are links on my website that can uh, take you, any listeners who are interested in these, to our information about how to take part in these things. So yes, we never stop being midwives and having this, I guess you could say, sisterhood of midwives. I mean, what's unusual, I suppose, about us is that we've worked together, all of us, for more than 30 years, and we've actually attended each other's births, and we created this system that really worked very well from us right from the beginning, and we haven't changed that much, but we have encoded a lot of what we know, and we found that as the years have gone by, this what is being called authentic midwifery is held in high value in countries where this sort of thing has been lost, and my books are used in the curricula of midwifery courses and our statistics and outcomes are respected and seen as a benchmark for what is possible. For instance, I was able to lecture in a city near Vienna, Austria, three years ago where the chairman of the OBGYN department, hoping to create an atmosphere in which their physicians would maintain the skills they have and not succumb to the increasing use of unnecessary technology to sort of favor business interests at the expense of the welfare of the mother and baby, he canceled all the elective surgery that day so that all the department would listen to me for about five hours. Now, when that day comes in the U.S., maybe we can make some changes. Well, you've done a lot of work over the last few decades, and it sounds like you're setting yourself an agenda for a few more decades of work. Well, it could happen that way if I'm so lucky. I mean, I'll, I'll work as long as I can. I certainly have more books to write, and I've been able to learn things. I'm still learning things. I'm sure that sustainable life is going to require a relearning and reestablishment of a midwifery profession that is held in high regard by the medical profession. We have to keep holding that vision in mind. Well, I'll just say, you go, girl. Thank you. Thank you so much for your witness and your teaching of so many people over the years. Okay, well, I appreciate it. We all live in this big old house Eight adults, six kids, and one pet mouse Two dogs, three cats, and a parakeet Got a great big garden and we never eat meat The room's upstairs and down the hall It's the one with the crayons all over the wall Three other kids share the room with me We're just one big crazy family And I got five moms and three dads it may sound strange, but it ain't so bad If you get tired of one, you can go find another It's a whole lot better than one dad and mother I suppose someday when I'm all grown up We'll take a survey to see if I'm screwed up Asking all of us hippie kids What we think of what our parents did I'll have to ask which parents they mean I got a whole lot more than most kids I've seen And if we haven't solved all the problems yet At least we've come up with a whole new set Cause I've got five moms and three dads May sound strange but it ain't so bad If you get tired of one you can go find another It's a whole lot better than one dad and other So come on by and visit us We're the house with the black VW bus There's a swing out front and a beat up car A beer sign from some western bar Sunday is our potluck night Whatever you can bring it'll be alright There'll be games and songs and food and jokes I'll introduce you to all my folks 
Cause I've got five moms and three dads May sound strange, but it ain't so bad If you get tired of one, you can go find another It's a whole lot better than one damn mother You've been listening to an interview with Ina Mae Gaskin, internationally recognized leader in midwifery. Music featured on this program has included Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin, Samba de Janeiro by Bellini, Wonderful Baby by Don McLean, and Five Moms and Three Dads by Tom Hunter. You can hear this program again via my website, northernspiritradio.org. And you can find other useful links and information on that website as well. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher cause for you than this To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness